Good evening. This is Fazana for Subject ACT on People Powered Radio 2XFM, bringing you the news stories and events of significance to the Canberra community and beyond. In tonight's program, we'll be covering interesting fundraising and charity activities going on in and around the nation's capital. In the first part of this evening's program, I'm joined by local photographer Inna Jalil from Inner J Photography to discuss our up and coming fundraising book project titled The Tales of Canberra, a coffee table book that will showcase some of the best looking cutest and friendliest dogs Canberra has to offer in an assortment of iconic locations around the ACT. I will also take this opportunity to speak with Inna more broadly about her work as a Canberra-based photographer. Inna, thank you for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me. Tell me about the Tales of Canberra fundraising book project and how it was started. I've been doing photography for a while and I decided to focus on pet photography in 2019. Upon, I guess, looking at other pet photographers, I discovered the Tales of the World Collective, which started by a Melbourne photographer, Caitlin McCall. I realised there were books uh, released for Tales of Sydney, Tales of Melbourne, Tales of Adelaide and all the other capital cities, except for Canberra. Since I thought, well, I am in Canberra and why not do Tales of Canberra? I mean, Canberra's beautiful. We've got lots of dogs here. And yeah, I thought it would be a great opportunity to um, do this fundraising project because, you know, it's also about raising money for um, local rescue. And yeah, that's how it all started. So what are you fundraising for and how much money are you hoping to make with this project? So for this project, I chose a local rescue, which is ACT Rescue and Foster. I chose them because I have been volunteering as a photographer for them for a little bit. And so I thought it would be good to help them out. I was hoping to raise around 2000 and I managed to raise about just over that $2,400 from this project. So talk me through the different stages of your project and what they involve. Yeah, so this project is um, is actually a 12 month long project. So there's a lot of admin involved in the back end but the first stage was the registration i released registration in mid-january and i got an overwhelming amount of registrations which was more than what i expected so after the registration closed i am now in the photographing stage and that's going to go on for the next few months i'm hoping to get the photographs all done by june and then that's when I'll start putting the book together in terms of the layout and then getting some text from the owners as well about each of the dogs. So I did ask that in the registration, but if I need more information, I'll be reaching out to the owners who've registered to get a bit more story about their dogs. So I want to put a little bit of story um, and text about the dogs in the book as well as a bit of the location. So hoping to publish the book by the end of the year um, before Christmas, but I want to start getting pre-orders by about August and, and then maybe doing a launch party and doing the book launch around October or November. How many dogs are you aiming to have in your book? So I was aiming to have uh, around 50 dogs. However, I've got about 70 dogs in the book (laughs) because um, there were so many people registering and there were people with multiple dogs. So I've got about, I think, 70 um, 70 dogs in Mm -hmm. the book. And oh, it's just, um, it's been amazing. The dogs I've met so far, I love them all. And I can't wait to meet many more that have registered. So you had a lot of registrations. How did you pick which dogs you wanted featured in your book? So I 
let it open to everyone. So anyone who registered uh, was in the book. Um, I kept it at, I think it was about 50 bookings and 70 dogs because otherwise the book would be too thick. But I do have a waiting list and I'm hoping that next year I'm going to be doing another book. So I'll be contacting a whole lot of those people as well for an opportunity to be another book. In terms of the locations for the book, I uh, chose basically iconic locations around Canberra like the National Arboretum, Lake Burley Griffin, National Museum, National War Memorial, just those iconic locations but also a few other small places as well like Fadden Pines, Lake Talganong. I think it's just those are beautiful scenic areas and people know them for Canberra. And what approach do you take towards working with the dogs and how do you get them to pose in the ways that you want them to? So each session, I make sure that I let the dogs sniff me and sniff the location. I let them relax because I want them to be comfortable in each session. The sessions is very relaxed. We go for a bit of a walk, explore the area, then we'll stop in one location and get them to sit down or just even stand and walk around. And then I'll be on the ground making weird random noises. (laughs) And that's how I get their attention. Um, I'll use treats sometimes as well. But most of the time, I just use noise. Um, I've got a little noise maker, but a lot of the time, I just make weird noises. And people do look at me weirdly um, if there are people around. But hey, that's how I get the job done. That's how I get the cute head tilts and them looking at me. What kind of noises do you make? Uh, (laughs) Do you really want me to try and make one here? I just make like random weird, you know, high-pitched noises and like maybe barking. Not barking signs, but like something that will get them you know to notice me yeah um and do you find that some of the dogs have a lot of different types of personalities they do they do there's some who just loves to be like near me so a lot of the times they just go on my lap which is you know not the position that (laughs) i could photograph in but i let them do that i let them get comfortable with me and then we play around as well so i get the owners to bring some toys as well and depending on how the session goes, we also do some action shots as well as, you know, photos of the dogs themselves and their owners. So it's always lots of fun. Mm-hmm. And I make sure that the dogs relax and comfortable the whole way through. So what is your approach to working with the dog owners? I make sure that the dog owners are comfortable and I always ask them about their dogs. So before the session, I always give them a call, try and find out a bit more about their dog, what their personality is like, you know, whether they like treats or toys or they like to do, you know, um, different tricks. And then I guess I use that in my photography session to get bring out the personality with the dogs. Throughout the session, I'll show them the photos that I take to make sure that they're happy with it. I feel like I want to make it like an afternoon play date with the owners and the dogs during the session. I understand this isn't your first dog-related project. What other similar projects have you and will you be working on? So last year I did the Canberra Paws Pet Calendar Contest, which is the first time I ran it. I found the idea through another pet photographer in the US and I wasn't sure how successful it would run, but I thought I'd give it a try because it would be great to create a calendar um, from the dogs I photograph and create something for Canberra as well. So the funds raised for that project went to the ACT Pet Crisis Support. Surprisingly, we actually raised nearly $11,000, which exceeded the amount that I was hoping. My goal was around $2,000, but yeah, we exceeded that by a lot. And that was amazing because that helped ACT Pet Crisis Support 
to help you know people around Canberra pay their vet medical bills and for those who aren't able to afford them. So that was really great. And, you know, I think that was really close um, cause to me because my dog was sick as well when about a couple of years ago he passed away from heart failure and I know how much those medical bills cost. Luckily, I was able to afford them, but I know it's hard for others out there. And for those you know pets who might not be able to be saved just because they can't afford the vet bill. It's it's hard to hear though. So I thought it was really great cause to um, to help and support. I'd like to talk about your work as a photographer more broadly. Tell me a little bit more about your background and how you got started. So I actually um, have a background of commerce. I studied uh, marketing and accounting. I did do photography in high school and I guess that's where my passion in photography started. So even though at uni I studied something else, I did dabble in a bit of photography and after university I bought my first digital SLR and started doing it as a hobby. I've been um, doing photography on the side for probably the last maybe 13 years and more seriously in the last two to three years and I just yeah, I just love it it's my passion I get to be creative it's it takes me away from that you know serious side of I guess finance and accounting which my background was in and I get to basically go out with a camera and capture things that you know you, you could see by your eyes but you could I guess capture it differently and then at the end of 2019 um, one of my dog passed away from heart failure I realized you know how important it was to have beautiful memories and photographs of him and I did take lots of photos of him but I never really thought of pet photography as a thing until until then and I wanted to be able to create those beautiful memories for others as well because I was lucky that I'd be able to take photos of him and I've printed all of these beautiful photos of him on my wall that I could remember him every day even though he's gone I want to be able to do that for others as well so I guess that's how it started and since doing pet photography in 2019 I am just loving loving it because I get to combine my love of dogs and my passion for photography. And is that part of the project that you're currently working on as well? Well I guess that's why I'm doing it because I get yeah I get to photograph lots of dogs, meet lots of dogs. I've got three dogs of my own but I just love meeting all of the different dogs around Canberra. There's so many dogs here in Canberra and yeah, each of them always bring a smile to my face. So yeah, I guess that's why I'm doing the project because I get to do something that I love and I, I'll i be creating something that people can actually see and have in their homes on their coffee table. And what are some of the other major themes in your work? Because of coronavirus, I don't travel anymore, but I love doing landscape photography and travel photography. And that's why I love doing outdoors pet photography because then I get to capture pets in beautiful landscapes as well and getting those beautiful sunsets, which is um, when I like to shoot um, and photograph in the evening, you get a beautiful golden hour light. Would you say that's one of the perks of being a Canberra-based photographer? Yes, I. it's the landscape in Canberra. It's just stunning, this beautiful locations, beautiful sunsets. And, you know, there's a lot of places where you don't get as nice sunset. So I think the perks about Canberra is there's a lot of dog-friendly places as well. And you get to um, go around and, you know, photograph dogs in beautiful landscapes. That's what I love about doing it. What kind of products do you currently offer and what would you like to do more of in future? So with my photography services, after I take the photographs, I'd like to show the clients all the images and they get to choose the images that they want to get. 
and I offer wall art albums and also um, fine art prints. A lot of my clients ask for digitals and I do provide digitals with a printed product. My aim is to give the clients a physical product that they can cherish, that they can see on their wall every day of their dog and bring them a smile to their face every time they see it. With digital products, after a while, it kind of gets buried in all the photos that you take. And so having that physical product like a wall art on your wall at home, you can cherish it and you can treasure it every time you go into your house and see it, which is what I like to do with my photos of my dog, Mac. I've got a lot of photos of my dogs around the home, on the walls, as well as um, beautiful albums as well. I think I want to be able to provide that to people and having that physical product there gives them something they can hold and see as well. What would you say have been some of the highlights of your career as a photographer? I think it's actually just meeting different people and different dogs and pets. And most of my clients are dogs, but I have photographed a cat here and there. And, you know, I've had to, I went to Goulburn um, to photograph a cat end of last year. And it was a bit of a sad experience because the cat um, was sick, but I'm grateful that I was able to give some beautiful memories to that cat owner and take some beautiful photos of the cats um, on their property in Goulburn. So that was really nice. And I think just meeting all the different wonderful people, I've actually made a lot of friends from the owners that I photograph their dogs and we've become great friends and we go out on dog play dates with my own dogs as well. So I think that's probably some of the perks that I love about doing it. So you have a full-time business analyst job? I do have a full-time business analyst job at the moment, um, but I'm hoping that I'll be able to do more of the photography um, in the near future, definitely. So how do you manage your time having a full-time job and following your photography passions? I think it's just trying to map out my time each day to make sure that I have time for, you know, photographing and editing um, because photographing is only a small part of the job. Um, People think that's the biggest part, but it's actually only a small part. There's a lot of things behind the scenes, such as editing, um, because most of the dogs that I photograph are on lead. And when you see my photos, the dogs are not on lead. That's because there's a lot of works behind the scenes in Photoshop where I remove the leads, sometimes to the point where I remove um, parts of the people as well because they are in the photos. I think for me, managing the time is just trying to batch out my time you know, for editing, for photographing, giving some time as well to relax because it does get exhausting at times. But because I love doing it, it doesn't feel like it's hard work. Probably do a lot more of it than I than I like to, but yeah, it's great. And what advice would you give to other aspiring photographers who are just starting out? I think just give it a go. Get out there, get yourself out there. And, you know, doing projects like this, I think for me, it wasn't about the business. It was more about trying to discover what I can do with my projects, helping people out there, helping the charity as well. And just going out and taking lots of great photos and creating beautiful memories for people um, of their dogs in camera.
This is Fazano for Subject ACT on 2XXFM Canberra Community Radio. 2XXFM is a volunteer-based, not-for-profit radio station with an emphasis on the local community. Tonight's program is covering interesting fundraising and charity activities in and around the ACT. In this part of tonight's program, I'm speaking with Nick, who is an executive member of the Regional Education Support Network, referred to as RESIN. We'll be discussing what the organisation is doing to address the educational gaps and barriers faced by regional high school students across Australia. Nick, thank you for joining me this evening. Tell me a little bit about your organisation. So the Regional Education Support Network is a not-for-profit organisation which currently encompasses around 500 volunteers. Starting in 2018 with a group of friends at universities in Canberra and Melbourne, they recognised that their educational experience was very different to their regional and rural counterparts where it was common for a metropolitan student to have access to support such as tutors and practice exams. Um, This wasn't the same for regional rural students who may not even be able to locate a tutor. Um, And it was this disparity that uh, began resonant to combat that educational inequality found between metropolitan and rural areas. So you've touched upon some of the educational challenges faced by regional students. What are some of the major barriers that they face? The Australian Bureau of Statistics shows that only 12% of the population in remote areas have a bachelor's degree or higher, and that's only 18% in inner regional areas. Where roughly 63% of metro students uh, intend to enrol in higher education, it's, it's almost half in regional areas, with only 35% intending to go into higher education. It's twice as likely for a high school student to be caring for a dependent in their family, such as a grandmother or a younger sibling, and that gives them less time to dedicate to study. These gaps are because regional students have financial disadvantages, they, they can't pay for that extra academic support, they, can't, they may not be able to afford a tutor even if there is one. There's a geographic disadvantages like having to travel hours to get to school and back um, and if there was some sort of support available to them, that would add to the time that students spend travelling. Very serious staff limitations in regional schools. The national average of students in a classroom is 13.5, but it's often much higher than 20 in regional areas. The teacher cannot dedicate the same amount of time per student as they would in a metro area. High school students are just very limited in their options. They cannot choose whether they receive extra support or not, and it's a constant struggle for regional students to compete for whatever support is on offer. That can be very disheartening for an aspiring kid who wants to seek more and do better. And what's the service that you provide to the community? We currently operate in three states, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, The main service we provide is called Resin Help, uh, which is a question and answer based service run by our network of volunteer tutors. Students can submit an essay draft or a physics problem uh, and receive their feedback within 24 hours because timely assistance is absolutely crucial to their education uh, because of the pressure that they're under. We have Resin Learn, which is a combination of wiki and practice uh, questions. So students can go and preview the work uh, and test their knowledge to make sure that they've understood. We have our seminars, which is the main way that we engage with students. This is a 45-minute seminar where um, we try and explain the differences between aspirations and expectations to regional and rural students, helping them achieve their goals and recognise what they want. And finally, of course, we have uh, resin workshops. Um, These are revision type resources, which are normally very inaccessible to regional rural students who can't travel out to a university or to a community facility and receive that condensed and concise knowledge. And the best thing about all of this is what I've just described is completely free. Um, We don't think that financial disadvantages should uh, be an obstacle to a student's education. And I think it's particularly relevant at the moment with COVID because students are already isolated and now they may not even have access to those basic services. How do you ensure that students are doing and submitting their own work? 
The philosophy we have at Resin is to support learning and help students achieve their own outcomes, not to achieve the outcomes for them. So tutors may guide and provide feedback, but they're not to do the work for the students. Another function we have is called subject blocking, where a teacher can let us know that they're giving an assessment to their students, and we can block that subject out for the specific dates that they need. That way the student cannot access that Resin Help portal, and uh, they can do the assessments on their own. Lastly, our subject coordinators are specifically trained to identify and recognize when a student might be putting their assessments on the portal. Um, we're also very cautious when a student's posting very frequently as well. So how do you pick your tutors and what kind of training do you provide them with? The recruitment of tutors is uh, handled by our volunteer relations team and our tutors must either have high results from high school themselves or um, they study that subject at university. We have very high standards for our tutors and we might find them, say, on the high achievers list in the relevant states uh, or perhaps in university groups and societies. It's our tutor support team who train the tutors and provide them with the materials necessary to perform the role. This includes uh, completing a module uh, when they commence and their tutors are always under constant review by uh, our subject coordinators and education managers. Um, when they post an answer, we always check the answer and make sure that it maintains a high standard. But our tutors also support each other and assist each other in the role. A student can receive multiple answers from different tutors who bounce off each other and improve the feedback. Who are you targeting with your service and how do you engage them? Of course, our services are aimed at students in their schools, and all teams in Resin are responsible for that, uh, engaging with our students in one way or another. However, it's my team, the outreach team, who are responsible for getting students on board. The primary way that we engage with the schools uh, is by making regular calls, uh, writing emails, or meeting with school staff when we can. When reaching out to a school, we try to exhaust every possible avenue before moving on because no student should miss out on this service simply due to missed calls or to a busy schedule. We engage just as equally with the community groups as well. We're always looking for ways to improve the quality of education for regional and rural students, and we believe the answer is in the community. We call universities, local councils, libraries, youth groups. It's seeking ways to support uh, students outside of school. A young person's learning and growth shouldn't stop outside of school, and we work with the community to make sure that there is support out there for them. And what kind of response have you received from the public so far? Libraries and other community services such as youth groups and rotary clubs tend to be very receptive of our services and are always ready to help us out. I mean, putting our information on their socials or putting posters up on their notice boards and working with us to, on a specific project. Unfortunately, schools tend to be a little less receptive and require a lot more work engaging with and building that relationship, um, which is totally understandable. You, you could imagine as a teacher receiving a phone call from someone or an email explaining this service that provides free tutoring and, and workshops and revision lectures. Um, as a teacher, you would think that this is too good to be true. However, as I said before, we try every avenue before it's time to move along. We're very proud to say that we currently have over 185 schools registered with us, including approximately 1,800 students. We've received thousands of questions and our seminars have reached hundreds of students. Among our volunteer cohort, the response is outstanding. We always have ex-students and university students seeking to get involved, so we're never short on assistance. And that is incredibly warming to see as a rural student myself. And what have been some of the tangible outcomes of the service you provide? Overall, we've provided something like 5,500 answers on our resident help service. At this stage, it is hard to tell how a service improves test scores because we don't actually ever receive the students' final uh, numbers. However, through our feedback system where students can write to us, um, we've received a score of 9.78 out of 10 across 1,400 responses. I've also got some anonymous responses here. A student from Victoria said, uh, that was really amazing feedback. I felt proud of my work, but you also helped me understand that there were things to improve. And another teacher from Victoria said, it can take a teacher up to two weeks to provide feedback. With Resin, we get it in a day, even less than. To have that feedback in such a short time is very valuable. It's a lot better. 
So as you can see, even though we don't have hard data on test scores, our services improve the confidence and understanding of the students, which are key to successful outcomes. It's also very common for previous students to join Resin um, and become a tutor or a member after graduating. Having received the support themselves, they often want to give back and assist their peers. Why are you passionate about this cause and how does it relate to your own experience of life? I'm passionate because I grew up in a rural town along the north coast of New South Wales called Grafton. And although my education was good, I felt like I was competing for the support that was available to me. Getting time with my teachers to ask those difficult questions was very hard because there were 23 other students who were also requiring the same support. There were tutors, but it was really hard to get a time as they were always booked out. I guess I hadn't realized the disadvantages of growing up rurally until I got to university here at the ANU in Canberra. The transition from high school to university was also tough. I found I didn't have nearly as many resources available compared to my metro friends. I knew very little about university life, the study, the expectations, and I moved down here by myself. I had to be very trusting of the photos online and the carefully curated course descriptions because my family and I couldn't simply drive here and see the uni, and we didn't know anyone who had been here before. Having someone to ask online or, or, or a seminar to refer to would have provided so much more closure. And for many students, it would reduce the stress and anxiety that comes with making such a big life decision. What are the future objectives for Resin and how do you plan to expand? Yeah, so currently we only operate in those three states I previously mentioned. Um, however, we are intending to grow and, uh, and we're growing rapidly as it is. Uh, it's only a matter of time until our services reach into more states. Um, more directly, however, we're currently applying to get some funding from the government um, that will help facilitate that growth and ensure we can offer our services uh, in the long term. We're always recruiting new tutors and organization members to join us in our journey in combating educational inequality. So expanding our services to reach more students is very important to us. On average, we reach about five or six new schools each month. And since 2020, we've added the services Resin, Resin Learn and Resin Seminars and the workshops. So we're growing at an unprecedented pace. This is Fazana for Subject ACT on 2XXFM Canberra Community Radio. In tonight's program, I covered interesting fundraising and charity activities going on in and around the ACT. I spoke with local photographer Inna Jalil from Inna J Photography to discuss our up-and-coming fundraising book project titled The Tales of Canberra. In the second part of the program, I spoke with Nick, an executive member of the Regional Education Support Network. I would like to thank our guests this evening for their time and the wonderful contributions that they are making to the wider community. To wrap up this evening's program, I'd like to leave you with a song called Facing Backwards by Sydney-based artist Spatcop featuring Bob Nick. You are able to listen to the album for which this song forms the title track on Fat Cop's SoundCloud page. At Subject ACT, we support Australian music and are always interested in new talent. Details of the song and the band's music will be provided as part of the promotional materials for this evening's program. Good evening and enjoy. Right. Every-
every other sedentary edifice alive Sick awake and late at night Wanting to cry and a slide like Still I'm right when the day comes I save time for the same sun I waste none But there's always another line that's a grave summed Saying you're dumb and you were made done Ain't run The mic heavy and my hands right steady If I'm like many my mind in sight spreading If I find heady it's right to fight Gettys Turning dry settings to light the right headings I'm are opening and the dreams are done I'm catapulting from the boiling sun Summer eyes are opening and the dreams are done I'm catapulting from the boiling sun